This is GWC podcast number 361, recorded February 17th, 2013. In this episode, one of the crew is out sick, the rest wax philosophical about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Juan records the podcast intro for some unknown reason. But first, your hosts, at least two of these three unrepentant sci-fi geeks. I'm not Chuck Cage. And one day you end up a big evil, you know, crap bag. Nor am I Audra Heslip. If I had a nickel for every time I got boned at the Eye of Jupiter. Or Sean O'Hara. <laughs> I shall fart. <laughs> Our mission, enjoy new science fiction, fantasy, and other cool stuff every week and share the experience with you. Oh yeah, and have some fun in the process. GWC is brought to you largely by the generosity of listeners like you. It's your donations that keep us going. For more information on how to donate, visit galacticwatercooler.com slash support. And the fine folks at audible.com. Visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash watercooler for your free audiobook. Of course, we'd love to hear your opinions, too. So if you have something to say or, hey, you could introduce us to something new, don't just holler at your MP3 player. Give us a call at 214-296-9229. That's 214-296-9229, extension 701. And leave us a voicemail for inclusion in a future show. Better yet, you can join the GWC community, a group widely recognized as the friendliest people in sci-fi, in watching, reading, and enjoying all kinds of cool stuff 24-7 over on galacticwatercooler.com, our website, blog, and forum. GWC is a spoiler-free podcast, and we define spoilers as definitive information regarding material not yet released in the United States or its country of origin. In short, if it's out, it's fair game. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> you know, uh, first I got to tell you that uh, Sean is not able to be here with us today because uh, he got a little bit of a cold. It's the plague. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of. But earlier this week, he was feeling crap. He's feeling better, but uh, his voice is pretty much gone. Yeah, I guess and, he uh, has like no voice at all. He yeah, said he he's just some. like, he's a toad. Yeah, it's bad. So rather than either force him to come over here and sit and and croak through an episode or just watch us do it we just uh said get better and so anyway uh yeah so uh in lieu of you know waiting for sean to get back here we thought that we would delve into something a little bit uh old and new yeah Uh, we've been watching a lot of deep space nine lately true um the way we got into it was kind of interesting, yeah, if you don't yeah, mind I mean, me yeah. me telling them. We were, I watched a couple episodes just because it was something different. We've been watching some Next Gen and then, uh, you know, with dinner and stuff. And then we, we watched a couple of Deep Space Nine episodes and I got this just, I don't know, this weird inkling that I wanted to watch essentially the Dominion War. So I went back and found the earliest Dominion War episode, which I believe was pretty much, uh, crap, what's it called? Is that the one where they go camping? Uh, no, it was before that. It's the one where uh, where Quark oh, tries Quark to make opens, the deal. He tries yeah. to open up trade negotiations yeah, with, with the, the Dominion, and he has no idea. Berries who they are. or whatever, right? And yeah, and he uh, Tallulah berries is that yeah, what it is? something like that. I can't remember. It's funny, and I knew the name of the episode until just a minute ago. If Juan were here, he'd know. But anyway, and we've been skipping through and watching the the key Dominion, 
War. Yeah, Chuck episodes. goes on uh, Memory Alpha and basically looks at the episodes and and then has sort of curated this whole <laughs> thematic collection of episodes. Like they should do that. They should put it out on DVD and Blu-ray, like the Dominion War episodes. It's funny they used to do that. I don't know if you remember, but like the holodeck episodes. <laughs> but like back when when Next Gen was still when when really <laughs> the Kai Win episodes. Yeah, back back in the day, right before sell through videotapes, you know, where they they realized, oh crap, you know, instead of just selling these to rental places for ninety bucks a pop, you know. We could actually sell these for twenty bucks a pop to people. Thousands of people. Yeah, millions of people. And I remember Beverly Hills Cop was like one of the first ones they did that with, and you could buy it for like nineteen ninety nine, which was a lot of money. Yeah, but not compared. You could own it a good copy instead of that crappy like uh, videotaped copy off HBO or something like you'd kind of kick around, or when people used to hook up and copy them badly, you know. No, I they they released a lot of next gen episodes individually on tape for rental places. But again, like at ninety bucks a pop, nobody's going to buy an episode for ninety bucks, right? Hell, we bitch about paying three bucks for them on iTunes. So uh, they they put them together when they started going to sell through. They put them together in like little collections, like it was the the Picard episodes or something, and it was these three ones that were key to him or something, you know, or. The data episode. I don't even remember them all. They did that. They did that? Yeah, they did that back in the... They weren't real popular. I don't think a lot of people bought them. But And very quickly, they they made it to DVD, and then they started those uh, $100 box sets, which were $120 box sets, which were great. Anyway, so we've been watching The Dominion War, and holy crap. I mean, first of all, Deep Space Nine, I still say Deep Space Nine is my favorite Trek show yeah it it continues to hold up for me too it's been a few years since i've really sat and watched a lot of episodes from deep space nine and and i mean we've watched all of it front to back several times twice Twice. yeah Yeah. but i mean it's been so many years in between and i think it's kind of cool because as i change and evolve as a person you know maybe it's been four years or something but you see different it really makes a lot of difference yeah especially when that four years or whatever it is has been analyzing a lot of media (laughs) yeah it's true the other thing that's crazy is for work and the podcast yeah yeah what else is crazy is i remember watching a lot of these episodes when they were originally on tv oh wow and the thing is i was in high school so, you know, I was like 16, 17 watching these, and I still remember the kind of shallow, I guess, way or, or, or simplified way that I yeah. thought about the show. I was a smart kid, but I was, you know, kid. I, I didn't have yeah. a lot of um, experience understanding the kind of things they were talking about. So I still remember thinking, you know, that it was funny that. Kira and Odo were together because it just made me sort of giggle that she would be with the funny looking alien or, right. um, you know what I mean? Like I, I looked at it in a very kind of simple way and I didn't understand the, the complex, uh, the loyalties and the betrayal and all the weird, like political stuff that I love now that I just <laughs> eat up and I'm like, holy crap, this is deep. Um, back then I didn't really get it. So I, you know, I followed the the major story plot and stuff sure, like that, sure. but man, 
You know, it just continues to deliver. Totally. Great example of that was actually this morning we watched for the many time. I mean, because that's an episode. One of my favorite episodes was was in the pale moonlight. Right. Everybody knows that episode. It's great. It's when Cisco brings the uh, Romulans into the Dominion War. Yeah. Basically works with Garrick and then ends up creating some some false evidence, fabricating evidence that uh, the Dominion is going to attack the Romulans. And he breaks the fourth wall sitting on his couch doing a like a video log, I guess. And yeah. He's, he's looking right at the camera talking about this really immoral thing that he did and how how it played out and then that he's going to try to live with it. Yeah. It, creepy, like really compelling kind of moral issue. And I think even more, what what I think this is a great example of is how I've seen that episode a number of times. And this time in particular, when we watched it, I felt like I was getting entirely new things out of it. You know, like, uh, so, so the basic story for anybody who, who hasn't seen it or doesn't remember it, um, Cisco decides that the war is going very badly. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, they see the uh, uh, casualty list being posted and, and they see their friends on it and everything from the war. And he decides they need to bring the Romulans into the into the war. So he goes to Garrick and in being, of course, the person that he thinks can maybe uh, get him some evidence that. Uh, yeah, he thinks Garrick has enough contacts left over in Cardassia that he might be able to find out some piece of evidence that the Dominion surely has some kind of plan. You know, he knows the Dominion is not gonna, is eventually going to is attack. eventually yeah. going to you know go back on its uh, non-aggression pact with the Romulans. So he figures. There's got to be a way to find out. And it turns out there's not. And and uh, Garrick suggests that it would be far safer and, and more reliable if they just created some evidence for this. Since everyone he asked about it got killed within a day yeah, right. of talking about it. So. And uh, and they do. They go through this complex process by which they uh, they obtain this this Cardassian data rod that's supposedly secure. And they uh, they, they get this person... Uh, this criminal to to fake it for them and to insert it into a, a captured you know recording of a meeting, so they create this hollow representation of this false meeting where they're going to do. Uh, they announce plans, or they uh, you know they 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 it's go them through. planning to attack. Sure, Romulan exactly, guy. and uh, and then uh, he plans this meeting with this Romulan senator Vrenak, who uh, is kind of douchey to him, and shows up, and he. Uh, he presents the evidence and that they made, and and after a long Vrenak immediately discovers that it's been faked. And the awesome moment that we quote all the time. It's a fuck. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Anyway, he takes off. Uh, Vrenak leaves and heads back to Romulus, and you're like, oh god, it's going to hit the fan. He failed. And- yeah, because Vrenak's going to say the Federation's trying to screw us over and get us into the war, and then basically double down their efforts against. The Federation. Yeah, and it turns out, and, and then they get news that the uh, shuttle, Vrenak's shuttle exploded, and uh, everyone suspects that the, the Dominion did it, and uh, he, uh, Cisco confronts uh, Garrick and, and says, hey, you know, I, I, I know... You you did this, and Garrick's like absolutely, and when- well, that's mild. He he walks into Garrick's shop <laughs> and, and beats the crap out and of him. Beats yeah. the crap out of him, yeah. And then Garrick Garrick knew that it probably wouldn't work out, so he planted a bomb on the shuttle, killing the senator. And he knows that when they find the data rod, any you know any issues with it looking like a fake, they'll attribute to the explosion. 
So now they and have, it does it brings the Romulans into the war yeah it, like the next day and and it's it's a brilliant thing and then Cisco at the end deletes his log and moves on and doesn't tell anybody about the rest of it I that's not the important part believe it or not all that real critical stuff isn't even what makes this episode important what was crazy is as we were watching it again it's almost like watching Ocean's Thirteen you know you get this who knows what when where you know because right at the beginning you realize I realized this time. And I've seen this knowing what's happened will happen a number of times. But this is the first time I realized that from the moment Garrick agrees to be involved, says, I'm in. He he never he was already planning this. Yeah. Well, it's when Cisco says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah. To get them into the war. And now are you in or are you out? And Garrick pauses, maintains eye contact and then says, I'm, I'm in. in. Yeah. And and at that moment. Yeah, and I think Cisco at some level knew, just like Garrick says at the end. That's why you came to me. You knew that I was the kind of person who, you know, would do the things that you won't do. And it's true. And he was, you know. It's so interesting to me because it's sort of like, it's similar to the Section 31 storyline where, uh, you know, one of the things I love about Deep Space Nine is that they're willing to explore the dark side a little bit, the dark side of the Federation. The Federation always portrays itself as being just morally impeccable. And, you know, they do everything <laughs> right. And they're, they're yeah. sort of, and they can be a little bit obnoxious about it, you know, like they kind <laughs> More of, than a little. yeah, I mean, they, they talk about the Vulcans and other people acting superior, but they do it as well in terms of moral <laughs> so true. and cultural values. So it's kind of cool to see the reality that we all know must exist. And, and, you know, I mean, we know that this stuff is so relevant. Like right now, there's a lot of questioning about the way that we conduct warfare and, you know, whether, you know, how drones should be used, if at all. And is that ethical? And is it ethical to make a list of people that you can assassinate? You know, can our government have a list like that and say, you know, use these unmanned vehicles to go assassinate these people? You know, we do that kind of stuff. And and yet we hold ourselves up to be, to be moral. Like, Cisco says at the end of the episode, well, it's a victory for the good guys. But, but, but he doesn't he, feel like a good guy. Right. He yeah. says it with a little bit of cynicism because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. It's kind of a, they do a great job of finding this, of of, of writing this line where you can see all of the arguments, but you're not entirely sure that, that the connections are strong enough between them. Like, like, okay, so war is doing bad things for a good reason, you know? And at what point is it not enough of a good reason? Or at what point is it uh, is it stretched a little too far? Like, I mean, we can't argue. Like he points out in, in the end of that episode, he probably saved, you know, billions of lives doing this. Yet Garrick uh, points that out to Cisco. Yeah, well, and Cisco points it out to us looking straight at us, right, you know, right. but, but the trick is, you know, he, he did immoral things in order to do that. <clears throat> he decides that he can live with it. It's the classic ethical question, I guess, which is, do the ends justify the means? You know, is it possible to have an outcome that is worth doing unsavory things or immoral things? There are a lot of those kind of questions uh, i guess a lot of those questions get explored in deep space nine one of my uh like a lot of the characters 
fit right into that. Like one of my one of my kind of favorites is Quark. And and I love in, in this episode it also gives a great example of that. There's that point where one of the immoral things that, that Cisco does is he bribes Quark to not press charges against the right. uh, the criminal that's making the fake for them because he, he stabbed Quark, right? Yeah, the criminal comes down to the bar and gets in an altercation, stabs Quark, and, and Quark, you know, is okay, yeah. but, but he could have died. But what's funny is to me is I think the first time I saw this, I thought Quark was just... Like being a, a good businessman, you know, by, you know, looking out for himself financially by accepting the bribe. But I realized this time around when Quark says, you know, I know I always liked you. Like the the way to he, Cisco, yeah, when he offers him the bribe, the way he relaxes, I, I I realize that Quark comes from a society, you know, the Ferengi, where where that's normal, where where bribing is the way things are done, and he's always been a little uncomfortable. Because the Cisco Federation's, you know, not using money and all that stuff is weird to him. <laughs> and even and when they he doesn't do. trust him. Yeah, even when he does, the fact that he wouldn't, you know, get a little dirty makes Quark nervous. And when he does, it actually makes Quark happy. I don't even think he cares that much about the stuff he got as the bride. You can tell he's forgotten about the stabbing at that point. He's, yeah. just, he's just like, he just yeah, got stabbed. Right. He, was okay. he was mad. And now he's like, okay, you know. He's like, this guy that I always kind of thought was okay really is okay. There's something in him anyway, you know? Things like that. I'm just like, wow, you know, there's this cultural sub sublayer that that comes out. Odo always struck me. Uh, Odo and Garrick in particular are my favorite characters. I I don't like Odo. I don't trust him. I never forgave him for uh for what he did during, you know, the the uh occupation of Deep Space Nine. But holy crap. Basically, what? just to to recap, there was a a very critical moment when the the enemy Cardassians had retaken the station, and uh, a bunch of people stayed behind, like Kira and Odo and Jake Sisko and so on, and um, they were forming a resistance to try to undermine the Card- the Cardassians and and so on. And you know, one key to this particular thing they were going to do uh, was Odo unlocking the the security grid or whatever so that they could uh, sabotage this weapon and odo was so involved wrapped up with the founder the female founder and you know uh linking with her and you know he didn't even leave his bedroom for like three days and ew i just remember the the nasty scene <laughs> in the bed so that's how solids experience intimacy you're like, ah. yeah. So oh. Odo, Odo is so selfish and so self-absorbed, yeah. and he basically says that nothing else matters because it doesn't have anything to do with him. You know, they're they're corporeal. Yeah, he and he's turns not. into a real dick. Yeah. So he, he's completely he he botches the whole thing, and and his friends all get in trouble, and Rom's going to be executed. So yeah, I I just uh, he's not a trustworthy guy. Uh, he's interesting though, and he really, I think what what connects Odo and Garrick in my mind is that they're both. Uh, duplicitous you know they both are people who are are never quite what they seem and you never quite know exactly who they are but and, and but Garrick you you know what I think this might be I'd never thought about this before but maybe I'm a little bit like Quark maybe and I hate to admit this but maybe I do want people to have a history like without a history someone without a history is hard to trust 
What do you mean history? I mean that uh, Odo just doesn't have one. You know, he has no history. You don't know what happened to him or where he came from. Even when they do tell you that he was like shot out from, you know, from the, the by the founders to, to go explore or something, that still doesn't say anything about who he was before or why or what happened. Or he just doesn't have a history. Like you drop him into here and he doesn't have developed family. He doesn't have connections to anybody. He doesn't, other people don't mean anything to him. There's nothing there to establish who he is in, in the kind of framework that I'm used to establishing. Look, on the other hand, at Garrick, who is the same way up until, gosh, like, uh, what is it, season three five. or four or five, when when we get the uh, the Dominion prison camp, and and we we discover that, uh, actually, I guess it was during the, yeah, we dis- well, we discover uh, that his father was the head of the Obsidian Order, and that his, and that his father never really loved him? Yeah, like, it was like he was, did, and I can't remember if this was, again, Juan could really help with this, but was his mother like a like the housekeeper or somebody? Yeah, we don't know they for sure. Indicate um, that, in Auburn Tain is Garrick's father, who doesn't recognize him as his son, treats him more like a, a protege, a former protege. Right, And right. then there is, yeah, there is the woman who is the the housekeeper and the kind of assistant to Tain, who there, there's a suggestion that she might have raised Garrick or that she might even be his mother. Well, we know it's there hard was, to say. There was some know. reason that his father didn't consider him a son. And, and in Cardassian society, I almost I, th- I think that would almost have to be that he was born outside the family somehow or something happened that made the made a blood connection, but not the official one. Oh, well, he said you know? that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. He says that Garrick betrayed him. But I think that was when Garrick was an adult and when he was exiled. It seems like he never recognized him as a son much past Garrick's like fifth birthday. Or yeah, because they talk about like, like uh, you remember when he, he says, do you remember the day when you tried to ride the whatever? It yeah, was the animal basically like riding the bike kind of thing. You fell off it like 500 times and you kept getting back on. He's like, of course I remember. It was the only day. You know, it's like literally they there was some kind of thing that kept them from having a normal Cardassian right. style relationship. I guess, and and then in the in the Dominion, uh, the Jemadar prison camp, where you see you see uh, Garrick interact with Tane, and and Tane says, you know, when he's going to die, Tane dies, and he says, you know, avenge me, you know, take care of, make this work, kill my out. enemies, yeah. kill my enemies, and and Garrick says, I'll do it, but you have to ask me this as a father to a son. And and he just almost doesn't do it. He almost can't bring himself to do it. And in that moment, I guess, you discover so much about who Garrick is that his other, everything seems to make sense. And I guess that's what I'm talking about is like, it doesn't have to be a good history or, or, or a right history or moral history or anything. It just has to be a history in the framework of what we expect, or it's hard to trust somebody. And that's, that's the way Kark was. You know the 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 you know Cisco didn't have a history as far as he knew and the things that that he uses to interpret who people are. Maybe that's why I never trust Odo. That's kind of embarrassing because you think you should be able to get beyond that. But but how do you really judge those things except against your own you know experience? Yeah, it's interesting to ask what makes Odo untrustworthy. You know, beyond his actions, like what's right. what's the fundamental cause of him being yeah. that way? And on one hand, there's the the easy kind of observation that he's one of the changelings. And as far as we can tell, the changelings are pretty untrustworthy. <laughs> but 
not same with, same not with genetically. It, it seems like they're untrustworthy because they see themselves as so outside the experience of everyone else in in the universe. Like because they have this cultural memory, this cultural grudge of when their people were uh, mistreated by solids. They have never given up on that sense that that they cannot trust anyone else. So in turn, they've become untrustworthy. And I think that happens with people. Yeah. You know, like people, people who always think that others are lying to them tend to be people who lie or um, (laughs) and vice versa, you know. And it's t- people who think others are lying to them tend to be uh, liars, and people you know who lie to people tend to be lied to. It's kind of like it's a self-perpetuating yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that this like this historical grudge between um, Odo's people and anyone who's solid, which is everyone else, because we don't know of of any other species who's like him. So it's them against the world, and they have. I think that that's the kind of perversion that's led themselves to establish themselves as gods. They, you know, they don't really touch on this directly in Deep Space Nine. They don't ever like examine it and analyze it the way we are. But they are not gods. And other people didn't come to them and say, because of your behavior and your good deeds, like, you know, like Jesus or whatever. They didn't (laughs) say, because of who you are, I'm going to follow you. You're my God. It wasn't like that. They're like... We're going to make ourselves gods. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to make some people who we need are to make people, servants. and yeah. then yeah. So we'll 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 subjugate the rest. Yeah, exactly. We'll take over this species, which the Vorta were. Uh, we get the sense that the Vorta were originally an independent species. We're going to take their template and make a bunch of clones, make them our uh, kind of middle managers, and then we're going to genetically engineer an army of people who are dependent on this drug that only we can give them. And they're going to see us as gods. So we're going to, in order to show everybody that we are gods and fulfill our complex that we have about ourselves, we're going to create all of these like manufactured beings to show the world that we really are gods, which is kind of messed up. <laughs> A little bit. And <laughs> so the thing is, I think that um, I think that that's what makes the changelings untrustworthy. But Odo, on the other hand. Um, I think that he has his own reasons for being untrustworthy because no one ever took care of him when he was, they said basically a toddler, you know, when he was newly formed, they ejected him from his culture and sent him out alone into the universe. And he doesn't remember, but he was, he was taken in by humans who did all kinds of nasty experiments on him and turned right? Uh, yeah, because Odo. I'm is, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Is Bajoran for other or something or or something like that. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yes, you're right. Bajoran. So he, but he's raised by solids who basically maybe have good intentions, but they don't really see him as a, a sentient, dignified being. They treat him sort of like a, a circus freak or you know a creature with interesting abilities, and. So his whole life, he's he doesn't experience any nurturing at all, any parenting, any guidance, any teaching of morality, any anybody to help him understand who he is and where he came from. So he, we get the sense that he might be 
he might be 100, 200 years old. We have no idea. He doesn't even know. Right. And he is obviously an adult. Uh, you know, we don't know how long changelings live. The female founder says they're timeless. I, I don't think that that's mm. probably eternal, but. No, it probably has something to do with the link and, right. and intermixing or something. So he's clearly relatively mature and he's gotten to this point where he has had to come up with sort of conjure up his own system of morality. And the only way he did that, as far as I can tell, is when the Cardassians originally occupied Deep Space Nine. And he borrowed from their law to create a sense of justice, which he made on his own out of bits and pieces. Right. And which is all screwed up and, and which has its roots in his deep fears and insecurities about not belonging and about not being able to trust anybody. The rest of the founders. Right. So feeling that he can't trust anybody, he himself is also not that trustworthy because he won't, he won't put himself out there. And he's not going to do that even for people later on who, who would do it for him. He just doesn't know how. It's interesting how often, you know, when you think about these thoughts come up and, and they actually explore them in different episodes throughout this long arc. Like, like it occurs to me that, that the problem with the, the founder outlook, I mean, on the whole, they're right. You know, on the whole, people will cause them problems and, and people will threaten them and, and bad things will happen. But you got to be careful looking at the whole only, you know, and, and there's that uh, episode statistical probabilities, which is about right. the, the genetic, uh, the, the, the people who were genetically engineered, but who had, right, had like, problems, problems with, with it, it yeah. right. And had to be turned over to this institute to get care. And of course they don't know, they bar, uh, genetically engineered or people from participating in, in many professions, uh, because it would be unfair. And more importantly, because e- even if it was fair to that individual, it would encourage others to continue it and they want to discourage it heavily. And, and they question that a little bit and it gets yeah. played in other places. Uh, that's considered. such an interesting story. Right, I mean, right. Cause that's somewhere that I think that realistically we will be headed. Yes. If not already. And, but uh, the reason I bring it up is that these uh, relatively bright people, along with uh, Bashir, who is genetically engineered as well, uh, but was well hidden, and, and they did a good job on the resequencing, I guess, uh, they, they come up with these predictions as to the future of the, of the war and come to the conclusion that the, uh, you know, that the Federation will lose the war and should surrender to save all of these lives and so on. And this reminds me a lot of, of the, the future history stuff, this uh, Harry Seldon uh, material as part of the, uh, the, the Foundation trilogy. Are you familiar with any of that? Uh, no, I know that Asimov wrote the Foundation. Yeah. Code. Who's Harry? Who? Harry Seldon is one of the characters. He, he comes up with this process of crap, what's it called? I can't remember. And that's horrible. I should know. Um, but essentially he comes up with this mathematical way of the, of advanced social science of coming up with, with, you know, how to aggregate all of the various things that, that drive what we do and how we do it to find out where big things are going to happen. And right. He, Measuring motivations and behaviors and predicting them. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're right. And in, in some cases, the concept behind this is pretty scary actually in social science if you look at even like a basic social psychology class right they'll show you things where you can we know how people how people work to some you mean extent. it's scary because a interact. lot of times it's accurate well and here's the thing if you aggregate it enough it is 
you know, like on the whole, these things will happen. But what that doesn't take into, well, it does science wise, but when we misuse it, we forget that an individual still has free will, you know, even though you are wired to do certain things in a certain way and, and our social interactions do shape our, our, uh, uh, you know, our structural understanding of the world to the point where we do make decisions in a similar fashion. Right. And that's good because without it, we wouldn't have like, I don't know, society. But, right. But like in the but, show, if, if Ducat hadn't lost his daughter, you know, I think things yeah. would have been very different. And not just that you can decide not to do those things. It's hard, but you can. And one person can be inspirational to many, and that's how it all works. You know, yes, it aggregates out over a large number of people, but there are individuals that that lead and and that that set that start the cascade, and uh, and and the episode brings that to light, right? Through uh, through a number of different things. But, right. Bashir is so certain that their calculations must be right going all the way out to basically the whole war, dealing with the entire Thousands quadrant. of and, years into the future. You yeah, can't do the, that. Yeah. And, and eventually he's reminded by the actions of just one of those people from the Institute that, you know, <laughs> one person people, can, change people it all. can surprise you. Yeah. And that's it, you know, and, and that's the, if you think about it, that's the flaw with the founder's outlook, you know, they are correct on the whole. People will do that. Yet, individuals can make huge differences with that and the way you act with other people can change that and all these things that's what they need to be thinking about instead of how to subjugate the whole universe to make sure that nothing ever bad happens to them it doesn't really work out for them you know what's creepy is that it just doesn't seem to bother them at all because i guess if you really see yourself as inherently superior and just unrelated to the concerns like the the little petty you know, trivial concerns of solids, then you can justify doing all that stuff. You know, I wanted to go back for a minute to the uh, the genetic oh, engineering yeah, discussion because, yeah. you know, I was thinking about in terms of correlation with real life stuff right now. Uh, I think that that was just sort of being touched on for the first time in in real life when the show was you know, when Deep Space Nine was on the yeah. first time, like 1997 was when they cloned Dolly the sheep and there, there were some big movements around then. But, uh, but now, you know, um, what, almost 15, 15 years later, we have some real changes that are, I mean, it's sort of like science fiction once again coming true. We're at the point now already where people make a lot of decisions. They can, um, well, they can either terminate pregnancies that aren't what they want, like if they know that there's a mutation that would cause a, a disorder or a, a handicap or something. Well, I guess the other way around, when you use that for purposes of shaping the, the characteristics, it's argue, I wouldn't argue that, well, anyway, that's, that's the beginning of eugenics, right? Yes. Uh, essentially. Arguably, eugenics is like yeah. the manual version of this where you just breed selectively or... Uh, or yeah. Yeah. And you know, we're not, as far as I know, we're not there yet in terms of being able to manipulate the genes of a, of a child who's already been born to become enhanced, you know, spatial and, and it's reasoning tough. and all that stuff. I think the main reason that, cause we certainly having, we certainly have the knowledge to make changes. I think the thing that stops us is experimentation, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, because the mistakes would be just inhumanly horrible. I couldn't even imagine. But 
it really is a big question. I mean, it's interesting when you think back on the Olympics last year, right? It was our first chance to kind of get a, a little that's the first time I remember it being a significant question in some cases, like all of a sudden we're physically, and we're not talking about genetic engineering here, but we're talking about just, just modification of the human body. You know, if somebody is quote disabled and yet they have, you know, appliances which allow them to run faster, how does that fit into the equation? And we had to start thinking about that, right? Well, the idea that an Olympic athlete is someone who has honed all of the physical, um, the biological abilities that they've been endowed with. Right. So obviously you have to be endowed with those abilities in the first place. And, you know, as far as I know, I think I actually think my physician asked or (laughs) or told me this because I had asked about it. And he said that, you know, it's true that um, a lot of uh, professional athletes and Olympic athletes are biologically endowed with maybe just a, a slightly larger lung capacity or a slightly larger, um, you know, uh, predisposition toward, you know, like balance or, or, or speed or or things like that. But obviously you have to, you have to work your entire life to hone those abilities. They don't just come blossoming forward and turn (laughs) you into an athlete for, you know, for nothing. That's the, it's, it's just like, uh, and the, the doping scandal has been a big thing since we, you know, Lance Armstrong's been in the news. And it's funny because on one hand, I'm always shocked at how many people think that those drugs are like, you know, he shoots something in his arm and he goes like, and he becomes Superman. Yeah. It's the same way people think that like, uh, uh, and they're horrible, but you know, that anabolic steroids for, for bodybuilders are like, they just inject it in their arms and they turn into Popeye, you know? And, and it's funny, I, I'm, I'm against all of this, but I think it's worth noting that, that, uh, like steroids, for example, do not do not make muscles magically grow. They simply allow someone to uh, to work beyond the capability they could normally, which allow them to grow, which means that they they put in the same effort as someone else. In fact, they put in more in order to get more. It's just that the other person couldn't have had that extra. You know, they no matter how hard they work, it would have stopped at a certain point. Right. It, it allows them like an opportunity. Right. That's yeah. it. Well said. It's not that it gives it to them. It allows them an additional unfair opportunity to get right. it beyond someone who's Same not doing that. Same thing with the, like the blood doping and stuff right. like that. You know? And like you were saying, I mean, it's sad because in a lot of ways, Armstrong may have, without the blood doping, yeah. may have still been the best. I think but there's no way to know. It's a good argument, yeah, you know, that he probably is one of the best cycles. Of all. And, and that's the sad part about all of it. But, but you know, what's... What I guess my thought about all of that when it comes to sports especially, and maybe it has application here too, I don't know. I, for me, in the end, as a society, we don't achieve anything when a guy can run a little faster or cycle a little faster. I mean, it doesn't change the world for us. It doesn't make, uh, it doesn't make things better. It doesn't, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? There's no real positive Im- impact from that, yet... There is. And I think that positive impact comes from inspiration. It comes from uh, realizing that whatever we're given, it's just a starting place. And and where we go from there is up to us. And that puts a large percentage of our, our, our life and our capabilities and everything else in our hands. Yeah, exactly. And, it doesn't it doesn't do much for the world in terms of like practical application. But as far as you're right, as far as inspiration, if it's. If, it's if they real, inspire, you know? if if those people inspire us to go out and 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 make more of our of what we uh, can make from ourselves, you know, 
then then it's valuable. And I think it is because they do, you know. I think what else is interesting is just how how amazingly um, bad things could go with genetic engineering, starting with these really, really good ideas. Like, for example, you know, we can tell at this stage of pregnancy that, you know, you know, if we allow it to continue like this, then the baby may have a, a debilitating disease. But if we do this other thing with genetic engineering, we can make sure that the baby ends up completely healthy without any health challenges. Right. To speak and of. then, of course, it's just a very small line to say, well, a, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's such a it's such a good idea. And who would not? Everybody wants their, you know, their kids to be as happy and healthy as they can be. But if you talk to people who have raised kids with special needs, a lot of them say, I don't want my kid to be any different. And it's it's horrifying to think that I would just choose to not have that kid. Um, and, and yeah, you're, it's like, where does it go? When, when do we start crossing the line? And I think one of the biggest concerns is that it's not something that would be accessible to everybody. So you'd have yeah. these like these small classes of people who would be able to engineer kids who not only are privileged already because their parents can afford to do it and, and are in that position. Now they have, they're going to be you know culturally privileged. Yeah. Now they're going to be biologically privileged. And now you, the privilege gap is going to be so enormous. We already have huge problems with privilege gaps. You know, we, we, we try to have equal opportunity in this country and a lot of other countries, but we need to recognize that not everyone has equal opportunity. So we do our best to try to help people out and, you know, even it out. But that would just make it, like, outrageous. You'd, you'd create different classes of humans. And I, I think it's kind of fun seeing how Trek has explored some of that in the very dubious Trek EU. <laughs> I mean, I even hate to call it an expanded universe like you do with Star Wars, because with Star Wars it was so crafted, you know, and, and curated. But with Trek it just sort of happened like they – uh, you know, in between that time, you know, in that big gap between the original series and where they made the motion picture and things started picking up again with modern Trek, I guess I would call it. In that big gap, there were a lot of novels and things like that and uh, and other publications of comics. There were a lot of things that helped to establish some of the history of the Federation that they never bothered to tell us about in 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 the TV show. And of course they're making it up as they go. And a lot of times there are different versions of it that are never really explained, you know, but you'll hear them refer to eugenics wars and, and how they imagine that during this transition between where we are now and this moneyless, happy, uh, awesome future. There like were, Deanna Troy says, there's no war, there's no poverty, there's no monetary currency. There's, yeah, but to get in between there, there was some really nasty stuff. There was a nuclear war, which seems to get deprecated a little bit now because I think, uh, I think we, we fear that less than we did up until you know the '90s almost. So, so that was always a key part of it was a World War III that would happen that would change everything. And uh, another part of that was very, I think, still applicable and, and comes up a lot were these. Uh, eugenics wars where people had become uh, genetically engineered and, and they had an advantage over everyone and they felt like they should run the show because they were quite re realistically smarter and more capable. 
And uh, when people objected, there were wars over it. And of course, that's that's what produced Khan uh, for for the the uh, famous slash infamous Trek Two, right? You know what's interesting is it reminds me a little bit of the you know the founding fathers, like <laughs> the guys who were starting up the first United States government, guys like Adams and and Jefferson and Washington and Franklin, and you know these guys really were smarter yeah. and, and more educated and yeah. more capable in many ways, not in Some every ways, way, yeah. but, but in certain ways than the populace. And, you know, guys like Adams tended to think that you needed to give more control to those particular people in charge because they knew what was best. And, you know, on one hand, you're kind of like, well, yeah, you know, you, you do want, you want people who know what's going on to be running things as opposed to people who don't. <laughs> but, but yeah. in, in other ways, you know, Jefferson was more of a more democratic about it. He wanted to spread things around, but it's it's not a new problem. It's just an exacerbated problem with right. the and genetic engineering. When you take the controls out of it, you know the the uncertainty out of it and you place that as another element of control and allow people to adjust that. It gets really scary. It really does. And and I I'm I'm afraid of it. I love the way Trek tries to deal with things like that. That's always been one of the really I think fun things about watching Trek is that they try. They really do. I I have to give props to Deep Space Nine. And the reason that I still call it my favorite, even though I love Next Gen, I, even, I like Voyager a lot. I enjoyed Enterprise, you know? I think the reason that, that Deep Space Nine is my favorite is that in many ways, Deep Space Nine had a lot more guts in terms of what they were willing to show you and how they were willing to deal with it. We ask a lot of questions and we want to see media address that. And, you know, it's really funny seeing uh, Ron Moore's fingerprints over some of these things and some of the, it's not and so, David Thompson and Bradley Weddle and a lot of our, should sound very familiar <laughs> yeah, to anybody yeah. who listened to galactic water cooler way back when, you know, these were all people that uh, many of whom have appeared briefly on the podcast, you know, and, and uh, there are some episodes that just in, it's not surprising that they were all over, you know, I mean, we see some really difficult stuff, things that you just don't see in other Trek, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, people generally have a favorite Trek series yeah. for various reasons, you sure. know? And I love Next Gen, but Deep Space Nine is my favorite, too. And I think that Next Gen, it, it really tries to get at some of those deep questions, but it was a little bit throttled back like it was sort of like family friendly and, and made palatable for audiences that maybe didn't want to explore too deeply those those questions or um you know for episodes that had to be wrapped up pretty tightly pretty soon when it comes down to it from what i can tell the the uh, the ratings were great for deep space nine but never quite uh followed next gen as as strongly I, I wonder now, I think we tend to, as as fans, tend to ascribe these, that's the wrong word, we tend to like just place these particular ideas upon the creators like they always had an idea for everything they did. And, and it's amazing to me how much it's accident, you know, or, or it just happened that way. Like reading, uh, one of the fun things to do, everybody reads IMDb, but you know, if you don't, one of the fun things to, uh, to do uh, if you don't already do this, is when you're watching uh, a Trek series show, any of them, is to go to Memory Alpha 
and read their background information, they call it, uh, in their wiki for each episode. And what they do is they tell you based on they've gone through all of the books and, and interviews and stuff that have been published and collected that information and tried to tell the story of the episode of what happened as best they can. Yeah. How did they write it and what real life events did they draw from? Yeah. Who was involved? What changes what were happened? made? Yeah. And- like we were, again, we, we watched this morning uh, uh, in the pale moonlight and we were looking at the background information on Memory Alpha and it was really interesting. Yeah, the Gulf of Tonkin and yeah. Watergate and things were inspiring uh, ideas that they used. And they started apparently with this uh, with with this particular idea of this Watergate style thing with Jake Sisko and uh, uh, and and Shakar, you know, the leader of the of the Bajoran government, and getting involved with his dad, and then that became him knowing something about his father, and then eventually that. Be- you mean Sisko? Yeah, yeah. Uh, something uh, you know with 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 uh, yeah and then they th- somehow that became it started a, out as like a journalistic intrigue story yeah yeah exactly like oh, an yeah. expose or something that jake would figure out some and then it had something to do with the romulan uh romulans getting into the war and then eventually they removed jake from it and it became what it was and uh it, you know the one of the initial drafts was written by uh one of the story uh, one of the common writers there uh, that did a lot of work for Deep Space Nine. And then later on, who was it? Um, Michael Taylor, Michael Taylor wrote, wrote the teleplay. One of them. Yeah. And then, Peter Allen Fields wrote the original story. Go. And then Michael Taylor wrote the teleplay. And then Ronald Moore uh, took it over and, the final and finished draft, it. Yeah. Even though he's uncredited, they say. And he uh, he's credited as an executive producer by the things that you would never figure out. And it's just fascinating to me to see. So anyway, I, especially I, for people who like are interested in writing, you know, who listen to the, the writers roundtables and, you know, who pick people like Jane Espenson and follow her work and stuff. Right. It's cool to, to find your writers uh, sort of their signature and be able to spot that. Well, what I was thinking uh, when I brought this up was that, you know, I remember reading that that some of the things that happened. What was the episode where the uh, I don't remember the name of it where the the Vedic uh, uh, hangs herself on the on the promenade to. I don't remember the name. Yeah. Of it. again, and, Juan would know. And, and changes. <laughs> it's one of the ones uh, in season six. I just think. early season. I think six. it's five, but maybe I, I forget. But essentially, oh, it has to be six because they're under occupation. Yeah, you're giving me the look like I should know that, and you're right. Uh, but anyway, it, it has this huge, makes this huge change in Kira. She goes from like kind of being a collaborator un, unwittingly to remembering who she is and what she's doing and stuff like that. Uh, you wonder how it got through. I think it was that episode or one right around then when I saw in the background information that somebody had indicated that it was around the time that Next Gen was wrapping up and they had a lot of the producers, the, 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 the high producers in their work focused on next gen and it allowed them this freedom because they weren't being watched. Essentially it allowed them this freedom. I got the feeling to do some other things. I, you know what I'm saying, even if that's what they said and I don't remember, it could not be true, but it just strikes me that things like that probably come into play way more than we imagine. You know, (laughs) you know, I I wanted to say real quick that storyline where Kira recognizes herself, like looking in the mirror, it's yeah, it's looking at herself in the mirror that, you know, freaks her out and she realizes that she has become complacent with the Cardassian occupation and that she's basically enabling them to to fight her friends. And 
it really freaks her out when she it's she's disgusted with herself and it, it she looks at herself in the mirror and just it's that it's metaphorical you yeah, know but yeah. but also it's it's really powerful because i think that looking at yourself in the mirror is you know something that you look in your own eyes or whatever and and you have to you have to be okay with who you are to to be able to do that and um, it reminded me of something I had read recently. I'm uh, teaching American Lit right now, and we're looking briefly at a piece by Jane Adams uh, with two Ds. I don't know if you ever heard of her, Chuck. She no. She was um, a social rights worker in the U.S. Um, around a hundred years ago. Oh wow! Who? Um, <laughs> wow. She created the Whole House, H U L L, which was um, a, a home basically for people in need. Uh, in Chicago. Interesting. And uh, she worked with a couple other women who were friends of hers and they believed basically they were, uh, she did these interesting writings about social decay and, and how there were people who were, you know, uh, the poor and, um, you know, people with disabilities or people with problems that society was just casting out on the street and there was no system to take care of them. So she, she was the person who, instituted the whole house which is the most famous of these houses but they they started cropping up all over the u.s and it was largely a women's movement because they were um i guess it was it worked out where there was a, a whole bunch of women in this generation who wanted to do something about the the social needs but what caused her to make that decision was she was living a life like as a writer and stuff and just kind of doing her own thing she was traveling around europe and uh, she was hanging out in Spain and um, going to art galleries and, you know, just sort of living the life. And she was kind of restless, you know, didn't really know what she wanted to do. And she would go to these bullfights. And one day she was at a bullfight and it just, it hit her like Kira looking in the mirror. She's like, what are we doing? You know, they're they're stabbing to death this poor creature and it's immoral and it's it's torture and it's wrong and we're all sitting here cheering and and I've been here cheering and you know I feel I, like I've had that wake up yeah yeah and and so she she called her friend like the next day and said we need to do something about you know this situation in the US you know back home and they went back home and she went to Chicago and immediately started working on the problem that she perceived was important to her you know i just think that's it's so moving. It's so inspirational and it really happens and it's not easy, but, it, but it really does happen where people have a turn like that and that inner, that inner shift can just change the course of everything. You know, um, in just an hour, we like have, have touched on a number of really, uh, really interesting social issues that interlock into this detailed story and and i mean even in just a few minutes before we started the notes that we threw down there's still other things like uh like general martok's background and how he's common born and how he treats people differently and what that means about the Klingon empire and all the things differently meaning better he gives them more of a chance than most argue yeah but i mean yet yet he still is a Klingon. you know he he still follows more than Worf does for example Worf and Worf's uh, the way he grows so much. I mean, he's a strong character from Next Gen, but in here, you see him really grow, and and you see him make mistakes and get smarter, and 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 live with his mistakes and all kinds of cool stuff. And and uh, and Cisco himself, who you know, 
yeah, there's so much here. If you're not a Deep Space Nine watcher, it's time. It's available now in a lot of formats, and there's no reason not to uh, not to hop in and watch them all. Um, in our last few minutes, this just barely touches on things, but it wouldn't be fair to not do something like this. Who's your favorite character? Oh, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> well, you can change your mind later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, I I have sort of two for two different reasons. You know, I I think that my favorite character in terms of people who I I, I kind of I, I feel like I understand personally and I kind of relate to because of who I am and who this character is and, and stuff like that. Like, feel a connection with would be Kira. Um, and she's a very flawed character, but I admire her in a lot of ways too. Um, but if you ask me like, who is my favorite character in terms of just sheer entertainment and writing and brilliance and everything, I would say Garrick. Yeah. You know, um, I, now I, now if you're going to feel like I'm copying you, I would say Garrick for the same reasons, just because he's, he's so interesting and he's so entertaining and there's so much to him so many layers they keep peeling back and he's still interesting. But the one that I, I would call out if, since we're going to, we're allowed to here, uh, since you set that standard, um, I, the one I want to call out that I think a lot of people overlook is Nog. You know, I always, I always <laughs> yeah. thought that, uh, he's a pretty awesome dude. He really is. Nog goes from, I, and I feel like this, he really grows into a fine officer. He does. I, and, I always felt a little bit of a connection, not because of where he ended up, but because of where he starts. He starts in this really kind of bad place, you know, and he makes a bad place for himself a little bit. Yeah, nobody really expects a lot of Nog when he's growing up and he almost drops out of school and almost spends his life as an basically illiterate adult. And and yet, even then, he gets involved in some bad things, and and he has bad things happen to him, and he's forced to deal with it. And he makes bad decisions, and and he recovers from them. And I think, I think that's inspiring, you know. And seeing that, I, I've always thought that uh, at the end of Deep Space Nine, he is hell, even in the beginning of of season season six. Certainly, uh, by the time he loses his leg in seven and gets out the end, he is a strong character has a lot and he has a strong character you You know know what i love about him is that he he can put aside his ego yeah you know he's the bottom of the barrel wherever he goes even when he gets up to the rank of being a cadet and then up to finally being an ensign he's still the bottom of the barrel and he he just loves being a part of things and being able to make a difference there's something magic about it. You're so right. That's what I. That's what does it for me. There's there's something magic about being willing to accept your own limitations and learn, because the minute you stop doing that, you just stagnate. And and as long as you can do that, you get better and better and better. And as long as you're getting better, I think you're the best person you can be. You know. Yeah. And it's like when O'Brien tells him about the naval tradition of calling whoever's in command of the ship captain, regardless of their That's actual rank. Line. And Nog He's says, like, so does that mean if I'm in control of the ship, then I would be called captain? He's like, and he says, if you became captain, <laughs> there'd be no one left to call you anything. <laughs> That's awesome. and, and then Nog says something like, you're absolutely Good right. Point. You know? <laughs> yeah. And he's all right with it. He kind of, he kind of laughs, you know? Yeah, and instead of being upset or always kind of, you know, looking at himself as like, oh, I'm, I'm so low or whatever, he's just like, He just okay. learns from everything. All right, he's that's a where sponge, I'm at. you know, he just, he's yeah. constantly getting better. You know, 
that's that's we joke about that like with with podcasting and everything i know a lot of times people have said oh hey why don't you you know do x and such this other podcast is better than you because you do this and i'm always like i believe in the wolverine standard you lots know? of other podcasts are better than us <laughs> that's many, all right I mean, many we but have fun i believe in the wolverine standard you know i i just keep on going you know we're gonna keep getting slightly better and doing our best and trying to get a little better forever you know it's the same thing when it comes to almost everything in life. If you just keep getting slightly better all the time, that person just goes to the moon. You know, everybody else is, it's better to, to, to go for the long run, you know? I don't know. I'm a believer. So anyway. Yeah, I, I can see that. So I think I, there's I've a always, lot to admire in Nog as a character. Besides the junk. You know? Oh, don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we should wrap up. Um hope Sean's feeling better. I know he will. And I, I would say it's uh, virtually a given that he'll be back next week. Uh, anything you want to add, Audra? Uh, no, no, just um, thanks for listening. And if you, if you ever want to talk to somebody who is just the most hardcore, knowledgeable encyclopedia about Deep Space Nine, it's Juan. It's Juan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Juan has some really interesting things to say about it and, and theories and connections that are original, things that I haven't heard other people say. Um, so we'll at some point we'll get him involved and, and maybe engage him on the forum or, or something. You know, you, you really ought to. He's, Hit him up at the meetup. Uh, the meetup's coming up quick. It's, uh, I don't know, about a month away, a little more, I think. And, uh, oh, exactly. About four weeks. Yeah. And it, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I'm sure everybody already knows about it. If you don't, we have a, an international meetup once a year in uh, the sometimes balmy Texas. And uh, anyway, it's going to be a lot of fun. Juan will be there. So if you're a Deep Space Nine fan and you want to you wanna talk Deep Space Nine, you know what to do. Other than that, I guess we'll uh, wrap up and we'll be back full force next week. On behalf of everyone here at GWC, thanks for listening. And thanks to all who make GWC possible, including producers Soleil, forum moderators Badgerspoon, Pike, and Frackentalos, GWC book club maven Casilda, and tech guru Juan Drew. Remember, if you'd like to share your opinions with the GWC crew and listeners, you can call us anytime at 214-296-9229, extension 701. You can also contact us via galacticwatercooler.com, our website and blog. But you should really spend some time over on the GWC forum. GWCers really are the friendliest people on sci-fi. We're always re-watching a group reading something fun. You might even find a GWC meetup somewhere near you. GWC is funded by advertising and by listeners like you. For information on how you can donate, visit galacticwatercooler.com slash support. Finally, special thanks to Ferris and his friends Encoder and Jim Minadeo for GWC's sweet theme music. For more Encoder, visit them at myspace.com slash Encoder.